Welcome to Pontefract. Pontefract you up. That's not it at all. No. <laughs> I know. All right. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 12, Pius I. Oh man, there are a lot of Piuses. There are so many Piuses, but this is the first one and that's pretty cool. It's, I mean, it's a pretty good name for the church, too, when you think about it. You're pious, and you know, this is this is a good time for that name, but we'll get there, so. Do you know anything about pious? No. No, I don't think I do at all. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. But we will find that maybe you know a little bit more than you think. We'll see. See how, uh, how indoctrinated into the Catholicism you are. Well, yeah, we'll have to see. So let's jump right into him. Pius was born in Aquileia in the northernmost bit of Italy. Again, we don't have a year for his birth, but we do know that it was at least in the late 1st century. So by the time that he becomes Pope in 140 or 142-ish, he would be at least 40 to 50 years old. And that's about as much as we can say with any certainty, so... Before we get to the papacy bit, though... We actually know a little bit about Pius's family. His father was called Rufinus, and he had a brother called Hermas. And Hermas and Pius were likely freedmen, since there are some references that we'll discuss later about them being former slaves. Oh, more former slaves. I thought we were over that. Maybe, maybe, maybe. If they weren't freedmen, this could be a flair for the dramatic. This could be exaggerating for at what might be very most a low-status plebeian Italian family, but we'll get there. We get this information from three different sources. The Liberian Catalog, the Liber Pontificalis, and the Muratonian Canon Fragment, which we haven't talked about yet. No, I haven't heard that one at all. No, it is a 7th century copy of a 2nd century codex which is one of the oldest surviving lists of the works that were considered canonical at the time. So this is a pretty big deal. Why is it important that Pius had a brother called Hermas, or that we have this verified in many places that his brother was called Hermas? Any guesses? Does this name ring a bell? Hermas? No. This is super, super famous Hermas, author of The Shepherd of Hermas, which was a very popular Christian text. I have never read that. It was actually considered canon for quite a long time in the church, and we, we know this because Irenaeus tells us so. And we also know that it was so popular that it was included as official canon in the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Claromontanus, which are both hugely, hugely valued historical primary sources of the ancient church because we have so few of them and this is great. So he was included in both of these codices. And we're going to get into the content of the Shepherd of Hermas at the end of the episode. But we can safely say that the importance of this document and the importance of the documents in which it's included in makes the brother of the Pope way more famous than the actual Pope. Oh no. <laughs> so Pius is a little bit overshadowed here, and we need to keep that in mind while we tell his story. 
All right. So with two very influential members of the early church coming from this family, a pope and a basically apostolic father, we can assume that the brothers were either born into a Christian family or the religion was adopted really early in their life, which gives Pius lots of time to come to Rome and make his mark in the church to rise to the position of pope which he does sometime between 140 and 142, which happens to be a very busy time for the church with lots of influential figures hanging around. Yeah, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. We got some Renaissance action going on? Not quite. <laughs> Not that many and far, far too early, but there are a lot of people that we're going to talk about in this episode that are not pious. Okay. Pius's episode has been overshadowed by everybody else. Pretty much. So we'll start with St. Justin the Martyr, who is one of the more prominent philosophers of the early church, and it's said at this time that he came to Rome under the papacy of Pius and began to preach his ideas about theology, which are still incredibly valuable and influential on the church even today. He even started his own religious school at the time to preach and spread religious education in the city. And really interestingly, St. Justin is actually addressing his theological treatises directly to the emperor, Antoninus Pius. Yes, that is another Pius. This is not our Pope Pius. This is Emperor Pius. Ninus Pius? Antoninus Pius. Okay. Some people say Antoninus Pius, but it's spelled the exact same way as Pius, so we're going with Pius today. St. Justin the Martyr is writing directly to the emperor and directly to the Roman Senate. So this is a pretty strong indication that the church is coming out of hiding for real now, and that Rome is definitely where religion is being done. I mean, his name kind of suggests that perhaps the foreshadowing... <laughs> Yeah, he he will be martyred after being denounced to authorities much later on in, like, 167. It was 20 years from now, roughly speaking. So during the papacy of Pius, he's still a strong and positive voice for the church. So St. Justin the Martyr is hanging around at this time, and he's going to be more famous than Pius as well. I know that that's, like, an after-the-fact name that they gave him. But could you imagine if that was, like, your name? And you just knew for the rest of your life something horrible was going to happen at the end? Like, that punk kid who hangs out with you, his name is Justin the Martyr. Well, at least you'd have lots of time to figure out how exactly you wanted to be martyred. So going back to this beheading or nomming, which one would you pick? You'd have lots of time to figure that out, so at least you could make a request. There's 20 years they could make up some new choices. Well, yes, I mean, we will get to some of those very shortly. Oh boy, there's a whole story that I'm going to tell you in a couple episodes and you're going to love it. Anyways, back to this idea of influential figures in Rome at the time of Pius. Not all of them are good for the church, right? Because like we discussed last time, the Gnostic heretics, Valentinus and Cerdo, had also come to Rome, and they'd been preaching things that the church was just not on board with. Yeah, but a couple things that they were, so... Yeah, with Valentinus at least. Some of his ideas were ones that were going to get picked up later, but at the time, at the time, under Hyginus, Cerdo had been excommunicated. After that brief on-again, off-again, on-again with the church type thing, 
And then Valentinus had been shown that patience, and he wasn't immediately excommunicated, even though what he's preaching at the time is still considered heretical for now. But this is a period under Pius that it's going to be increasingly heretical. Valentinus starts claiming that, like Paul, he was receiving gospel straight from God's revelation. And that this gnosis knowledge was given to him from the emanation of Christ to decode the true meaning of apostolic epistles. And he was starting to gain quite a following for this. So it's gone from these ideas that the church will pick up in the future to this, I am the new prophet of God and everybody can be like me. They want the drugs that he's on. Absolutely. They want to get on board with the gnosis. Maybe, maybe it's a slang after all. He's gaining a following, and they're starting to call themselves the Valentinians, so it's it's getting serious. And this would all lead to Pius choosing to excommunicate him. Hygienus hadn't, but now he is excommunicated under Pius, so. Yeah, they were being patient and, you know, crossed the line. Yep, he went a little too far. He started his own cult. He would have been okay if he hadn't started the cult, but too far. But that's not it, because there's a whole other dude that we need to talk about. And this is Marcion of Sinope, who is going to be the largest and most influential of the Gnostic thinkers. So Cherto and Valentinus were just sort of the preamble for Marcion. Oh, okay. Right? It's, it's just never ending. It's not Easter. <laughs> that's coming. We will also have to talk about Pius with Easter. Oh, man. <laughs> but first, let's talk about Marcion, because we know actually a little bit about him, and this is, this is an interesting story. We know that he's from Sinope, just like his name says, which is in modern-day Turkey. He was born into a Christian family, and his father was actually a bishop. So, I mean, again, clearly priestly celibacy isn't still not a thing in the church, and Clearly, he's been raised with the church this whole time, but Marcion doesn't go immediately into church office or a church life. He seems to have actually made a career out of either building ships or sailing ships or managing ships. He was somehow involved in the maritime industry and became rather wealthy at it. Well, while he's out sailing ships, building ships, whatever he's doing with ships, he also becomes a student of Cherdo this guy who got excommunicated before the original excommunicated guy yes but when when he becomes a student of him he's not quite excommunicated yet and he actually follows Cherto to rome so when Cherto first showed up in rome marcion was with him when he arrived marcion apparently makes a donation for his entry to the church of two hundred thousand sesterces put that in american dollars Okay, well, there isn't actually a good way to accurately measure the buying power of this money, but I did research it, I did look it up. People have tried to kind of get an idea of what the value of this money would be at the time, and so through their comparative sort of fudging the details a little bit, a first century Cisterci would have a value of about 6 to $12 in modern U.S. dollars. 200000 of those is so many, many dollars. That is a lot of dollars. But this is what he gives the church in order to enter the church. So he is now... He got all that from shipbuilding and ship things and ships. 
He had this great career. He's decided the money is now going to benefit the church, and he's going to be a part of it for a while because his views are still very similar to Cherto, his teacher. And he's really driving home this idea of the old god, new god separation of, like, two different gods, and that only the new god, the father of Christ, the new, merciful, true god, is the one that should be worshipped by the Christians. He argues that the old god, Yahweh, or what he would refer to as the Demiurge, had to be some sort of tribal god for the Jews, and that because of this separation of old god, new god, one god for the Jews, one god for the Christians, that Jews and Christians actually had no commonality in religion. So he's arguing they are entirely separate. There is nothing to keep us together at all. This is a big deal because, you know, we've we've seen the Christian church pulling away from its Jewish roots, but this is still way too far for most people. They are, they are not willing to accept that someone like Marcion is saying, no, you guys are actually worshipping two entirely different gods. No one is on board with this. Yeah, with the whole, like, it's one god. Yeah, they're not, they're not having it. And we've already kind of covered the rest of Gnosticism in some detail, and so we're not going to go full on into Marcionism because it doesn't really matter. But what we do need to know for the context is that he does amass his own sect of followers, and he writes 11 books of his own canon. 11 culty books. That he puts into two volumes called the Evangelicon and the Apostolicon. There's not a good in half for that, and that makes me upset. It's not good, but he's writing them, he's got his ideas, and for this... Irenaeus tells us that he will be expelled from the church and, interestingly enough, refunded his massive donation before being excommunicated. We don't want your money. They actually give him his money back, which is so, so many dollars. And you have to imagine that in the time that it took for this to happen, some of it was spent. So you know this is a huge blow for them to give it all back. But they definitely want to get rid of him yeah they don't want to be beholden to him at all and they don't want to be associated with his ideas like this is a very clear declarative statement that the church is making here they are rejecting this two gods theory completely and utterly and outright they are letting the world know now and forevermore that the old testament and the new testament gods are the same god the true god the Jews are worshipping the same god, not some other god, and that's that. And we're not even going to take money to change our minds. It's a pretty big deal at this moment. But unfortunately, that doesn't really discourage Marcion. He's going to carry on with his followers and his own canon in these two volumes. And for the next while, the Marcionists are going to come up against the church, butt heads with the church, and compete for the minds and souls of the Christian people who are coming to Rome. Does he get, like, really disappointed letters from his dad? He must, he must. We don't know anything about Bishop Dad. We don't know if he stayed or if he left, but we do know that the Marcionites are going to be there for a while. So, depending on what kind of dad he is, he's either totally against it or he's right beside him. You gotta make the judge on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't know. But what this does for the church, which is kind of interesting, even though it's putting a direct competition in mind, this isn't, you can't really call this a schism, because he's 
preaching an idea that's completely separate from the church in this way now. He's been completely removed from it. But what he does do is he motivates the church to really tighten up their doctrine and their canon to be really clear about what actually is this religion now. So we have all these writings that we've had over the last couple popes from the Apostolic Fathers and things that haven't really been considered totally 100% canon, but they're kind of still there and they're read out on these churches and they're still a part of the faith. There is going to be a distinction made between those type of documents and like hardcore canon Bible stuff. This isn't a process we can attribute all to Pius, of course, because this is going to take a long, long time to go through everything that's been written on the church in the last 200 years, but this is where it's going to start, at least. Again, we have to look at this moment as, if this is all happening in Rome and the competition is happening in Rome, Rome is definitely being recognized as the heart of this religion in the world. It's getting harder and harder to deny that Rome is not the absolute capital of Christianity at this point. But while this is all going on, Pius isn't just sitting idly by. He's making declarations and he's making contributions to the church. Or at least the Liber Pontificalis is telling us that he is making contributions to the church. They may have just put that in there because you know how it is. And the first one we can almost guarantee was just thrown in there to reinforce apostolic succession is that Pius is going to have a say about Easter. Oh, Easter. Going to go on forever. Literally, I am many episodes ahead and I am still writing about Easter. I, I deserve so many Cadbury cream eggs for listening to all of this Easter nonsense. If we give you a Cadbury cream egg for every time that we have to talk about Easter, the only thing that you're going to be given is diabetes. It's true. So, the text of the Liber Pontificalis tells us that Pius was the first one to make the official decree that Easter should now only be observed and celebrated on a Sunday. Although, they said the same thing for Telesphorus, where he was the first one to introduce the Sunday Easter and made it official, but he didn't break with the Court of Decimans, who still wanted to celebrate on whatever day of the week it was. Pius is basically doing the same thing, but he's making it an official decree. So it's kind of like your boss made a decision, and now the new boss is sending out a memo to be like, remember that decision thing? Yeah, that's still happening. That's for real. Yeah, it's a, we're, we're not rolling back that one yet. So they are, they are going to make this official decree. Sunday, it must always be a Sunday, and they're telling the Court of Decimans to get on board. The nobody's being excommunicated yet, but there is a strong suggestion that it's going this way. Ooh, are people excommunicated over Easter? Oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> oh, in the future, we will excommunicate people and we'll see how well that goes for them. So. Poorly. That's a little bit of sizzle for like five episodes from now. And, you know, again, we see that with the Gnostics, Pius is not super keen on excommunication and he doesn't really want to break with the quarter decimens over this because why cast people out of your church when you don't have to why not unify this church why not make it stronger as a whole why not bring people into the flock and we can see this as a real strong motivation for the one thing that he may have actually done which is 
starting a new policy for Jewish Christians to rejoin the church, to welcome Jews back into the church and rebaptize them or, or baptize them for the first time, I guess is more accurate. He's encouraging them to come to the Christian church rather than trying to separate himself from them. It's not super gracious because he's also saying that he is requiring them to renounce the heresy of Judaism, but Ooh. it's still more gracious than the church has been at all lately, you know, with that suppression of Judea and then kind of going, nope, no, we're not having a part of that. Yeah. It's at least something. He's trying to bring the church together, whatever that looks like. Let's bring these people back in if they want to renounce the heresy that they think is true and good. And, you know, let's just let those heretics come back and we'll welcome them with a baptism. He's trying. There are also a couple articles that I read who really, really wanted to credit Pius with being the one to first order the Liber Pontificalis. Oh, there is a lot of articles that really, really want him to be the one to have commissioned it, but this is definitely 100% not true. Yeah, it seems like a way later sort of addition. Yeah, and I mean, we do know that it is updated and updated and updated and updated up until the 15th century, so it is an ongoing compiling process. The original author is obviously not going to be the same person that takes it eight centuries later, but what we do know is that at least at the earliest, it wasn't even going to be begun until the 6th century, so we're still a good ways away from when it would actually be started. No one can actually say who the first author was, or when exactly, but we can say safely it had nothing to do with Pius at all, so. And if Pius was to be the one who commissioned it, you'd think his section would be much larger or more praiseworthy. Yeah, or even the ones before him. Like, it's only been 150 years. You can't have forgotten that quickly. Exactly. And there's there's really nothing there about him in the Liber Pontificalis. So if it was commissioned in his time... They're doing a bad job of milking all the good PR that they could get out of this, and, you know, pleasing the Pope would be a good thing to do. Talk him up a bit. Yeah. It it didn't happen, though. He had nothing to do with the Liber Pontificalis. But what he has done, though, is he is growing the church. Not too long ago, we credited Evaristus for expanding the church at a really, really fast pace. We talked about how he had holy ordination in December three times. Well, Pius is going to have five ordinations during his papacy. Oh, he just wants to up it. He, he doesn't do it all in one year, like Evaristus did, but he's still making some leaps and bounds into bringing new people into the church. So we know he's responsible for the ordination of 12 new bishops and 18 priests. That's the admin stuff. But here's where it gets exciting, because we actually have something. Okay. We have some building, like literal building. A building? A building. Oh, yes. He is credited for building a major church in Rome, which is the oldest Roman Christian church still in existence, called the Santa Pudenziana on the Viminal Hill in Rome. This is really cool. What's it look like? What does... First century Roman architecture look like. It's definitely been updated over time. So this is kind of what the inside looks like. 
Okay. The outside is nothing spectacular, but it's so old. It's wonderful. Like, we actually have a building from Pius. Oh, they got a little mural on the outside, too. They sure do. Up there in the eaves. Mm-hmm. How quaint. Isn't it cute? So let's let's talk about this church a little bit, because it is dedicated to St. Pudentiana, who is a part of a martyr family. A martyr family! So she has herself, St. Pudentiana, then we have St. Praxedes, her sister, and St. Pudens, who is her father. So this family is said to have built a baptistery with Pope Pius, where converts were being baptized. And Christians who had been martyred at the time were being buried on this site. The sisters were said to have been martyred in or around their mid-teens, but on the other hand, their father, St. Pudens, who is called the Friend of the Apostles, is said to have been martyred under Nero. So it's a little bit messy and convoluted. That's quite a gap, since the girls' martyrdom dates would be 70 years or so after Nero's. How did you have them babies? He must have lived a real long time and, like, somehow had ghost babies. Like, because these girls were in their teens and you died 70 years ago. Like, maybe the Romans had artificial insemination, but they're Catholics, so they're not allowed to do that. Well, maybe they didn't know that at the time. No decision had been made on that. You're right. On this, and, and by the way, her sister Praxedes will also get a church built for her in, like, the 4th century called the Titulus Praxedes, but... That's way later, and for now, Pope Pius is the one who is building this building of the Santa Pudenciana, which was more than likely built over the site of the baptistery that they had originally built. But it's not entirely clear, and it's a little bit confusing, because some sources say that it was originally their father's house, and that after his death it was converted into a bathhouse around 139. And there's still some archaeological evidence of this bathhouse. So if you go under the church, you can find bits of the bathhouse. Why didn't they just renovate that? That would be a cool feature. In the church? Well, I mean, they, they did. They kind It looks like they kind of converted it into this basilica. So, I don't know. It's, it is part of it. It's just not a great part of it, I guess. So It doesn't have to be an orgy bathhouse. It can just be a bath bathhouse. An orgy bathhouse. They called those the gymnasiums. So this church, as we can look on it, we can see it's pretty obvious that it has been built on and expanded upon over time. But parts of the original structure are still visible. And here's something interesting I read. One source suggested that the Santa Pudenziana was actually the official residence of the Pope after its construction, up until the Lateran Palace was given to the church in 313. But I present this with a huge caveat, because I only read it in one place, and the only other source that I could substantiate it with was Wikipedia, so that's not good. It just was a big circle jerk of itself. Yeah, so this doesn't actually seem likely. Quite a few historians would agree that the basilica part of the church was not actually constructed until the 4th century, so whatever small first version Pius built wouldn't have been much of a residence beyond, like, a modestly converted bathhouse. And if it really, if the basilica was really built in the 4th century, then that'd be pretty contemporaneous with the actual gift of the Lateran Palace. So it wouldn't make sense for him to have 
both as a residence. Yeah. There is no official site anywhere that says the Santa Pudenciana was official papal residence or anything. All these lists that have papal residences always starts with the Lateran, and so that is probably demonstrably untrue, but I read it somewhere and not just on Wikipedia, but that's the only verifiable place that it was, so I'm not counting it as actual fact. So, with that in mind, he then dies. Like the rest of his life, very unceremoniously, somewhere between 154 and 156. If he was martyred, there's no record of it anywhere. He was old, though. He would have been, yeah. He would have been fairly old, so it's possible he just had a normal, unceremonious death. That's pious. We spent most of this episode talking about other people, and we are going to finish by talking about other people, because now that he's dead, we should talk about his famous brother and his famous work, the Shepherd of Hermas. All right. The first question I had while researching the Shepherd of Hermas is, what exactly is this document? And unfortunately, it's kind of hard to say what it really is, because it's kind of a story, and it's kind of scripture, and it's semi-canonical, and it's in those codices that we mentioned. It's also, like, pop literature for the time. It's really, it's got this this huge note of, like, being quite apocalyptic. But it's also hailed as being this really beautiful, hopeful omen of peace. It is definitely a call to action for the church to repent for their sins as often and as soon and as thoroughly as possible. Because Christ is coming now type of thing. So that goes into that. Right now. Yeah, he's coming. He's coming. You guys need to get on board and do this thing. Repent, repent, repent. It's also written in the first person. So it has sort of that same appeal to a more general audience, like the Clementine literature. It's not just this religious theological text. It's more of this narrative tale. No these and thous and theirs and begets. Well, I read an English translation that left a lot of that out, so... <laughs> but it's not exactly a story either, so we're just going to touch on little bits and pieces of it. The text itself contains five visions, 12 mandates, and 10 parables within it. He talks a little bit about his own life, and this is where we get the idea that maybe he was a slave because he refers to himself as being a slave sold to a woman called Rhoda in Rome, but that he's eventually made a freeman. And then he casually mentions that later on he meets up with Rhoda again and they have a very amicable friendship. Thought you were gonna say, and then they have three babies, and I was like, no. Well, <laughs> next thing, later on, he has a vision of Rhoda that it's kind of implied it's after she dies, and so he's having this vision of her, and she tells him that he once had an impure thought about her. <gasps> oh, and by the way, he's married, so now he must pray for forgiveness for this impure thought he had about his former slave owner slash friend person oh man while he is praying one single impure thought and now he must pray for forgiveness while he is praying for this he is given another vision but this time it's not rhoda it's an old weak woman and it's very clear when you read this that this is a personification of the church 
and she's old and weak because she's been weakened by the sins of its followers, right? So she's she's a representation of the body of the church, and it's old, and it's weak, and it's corrupted, and oh no. And, and you can't have impure thoughts about it. No, not at all. And so she she tells Hermas a summary of this, basically, and she bids him to do penance and to get all of the other followers of the church to do the same, otherwise she's going to stay old and withered and awful. And as he does this, and he continues to do penance and penance and penance, the, the old frail woman in front of him becomes younger and more beautiful, and over the story she appears to him a number of times, and every time she's younger and more beautiful, but it's clearly the same woman, it's clearly the same body of the church. And then... He has other visions along the way where he meets angels, like the Angel of Repentance, who appears to him as a shepherd, and angels that give him parables, and they give him orders for the doctrine of the church, for all sorts of protocol. Of course they do. And one of the protocols that they give him is for denunciation of false prophets who are weighing down the church, which if you're paying attention to the context, is definitely some shade being thrown at the Gnostics like Marcion, Cherto, and Valentinus. But also pot calling Kettle Black there for a second. Isn't this a type of prophecy? I mean, clearly the church separates prophecy and visions, but that is for a much later time. But yeah, I am not going to dig into all of the parables and the theology because it's long very long, and most of it is quite dry, but I am going to wrap this whole section on the Shepherd of Hermas with the quote of the last line of this document, according to the translation by J.B. Lightfoot. I'm going to read this to you now. Are you prepared? No. No, you're not. I'm never prepared for these. This is the last two sentences of this document that the church holds in such value. Or did. That Or did, yeah. When then he had finished speaking with me, he rose from the couch and departed, taking with him the shepherd and the virgins. He said, however, unto me, that he would send the shepherd and the virgins back again to my house. That's it. I'm not going to give you any context on that. It's just a really weird sentence. And they're coming back. Yep. The virgins are coming back. What does that mean? Kind of ominous. Mm-hmm. I just thought that that was really amusing. I mean, if you want to read the whole thing in context, uh, we could put a link to it in the show notes. I have the translation. It's all online and it's very long. Or you could just leave and ponder on just that one sentence and think, hmm. The ominous virgins are coming. They're coming for you. What are they coming for? That's what I want to know. But now we've talked about everybody but Pius, really. So now we must judge Pius. Yeah, we need to judge him on all of the, the small bits that we talked about. Papatum and Phallium. What did he do for the papacy? Well, he could be considered responsible for building what is the oldest standing Catholic church in Rome. Pretty big deal. It's pretty cute, too. Yeah, he, he got in on the Easter debate, so everybody's got to have a say on the Easter debate. He got us a few bishops and some priests. Yeah, but that's pretty much all we got on him. So I'm definitely going to give him points for the oldest Catholic church in Rome. That's, for me, that's huge. I'm, I'm going to give him two points specifically for that. I'm going to give him a zero for the Easter thing. At least he didn't get negative points for the Easter thing. 
Not yet. Maybe at some point I will get so frustrated with it that I will start deducting points, but for now, I'm just going to give him the two for the church. What do you want to give him? All right. Um, you know, I want to give him two for the church, and then I want to give him one for trying to stick to his guns a little bit. He's excommunicating people who are not in line with him. Hmm. That's a good point. You know, he's trying to to get things on the right track here. So mm-hmm. I'll give him a three total. Okay. I think, you know, I think you've convinced me to give him an extra point for the excommunications. Because he is, he is making a difference in what the actual doctrine of the church will be at this point. It's not all up to him. So I'm just going to give him that one bonus point on it. So that'll give him a total of six for Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Well, who knows? But I have a feeling that if he had done anything bad in his life, there would have been someone right there beside him doing bigger and badder that we'd be talking about instead. So yes, that seems par for the course for Pius here. Yeah, he he's going to get a zero in this category. Unless you can think of anything you want to mark him down for. No. Seculari impactum. Well, he is welcoming Jews back to the church, whether they want to be or not. Kind of rude about it, though. <laughs> he is being rude about it. He's not being kind about it. He's also excommunicating Marcion, like you said. So this, even though we've talked about this in Papatum and Phallium, we need to consider that it does create a competitive sect across the whole of the Mediterranean for this period. Yep. That is going to impact people quite a bit. It's not a direct impact because it's Marcion who's going out and having the impact. But would he have done that if he hadn't been excommunicated? Yes. So it's not a good impact. I don't necessarily want to give him points for it, but I want to acknowledge that that is a thing. I would totally give him maybe like a point for that. Nothing super huge. I'm going to give him a point because he's trying to keep the church together. It's So he's bringing in people who would be at this point considered secular, and he's trying to bring them back into it. So he's not super successful with it, but he's making an impact. And maybe there were Jewish Christians who took him up on this and did come back to the church or join the Christian church, I should say, not come back. Because Christians are the ones that are have branched off. But yeah, he's giving people the ability to be a part of this if they want to. And certainly there was someone who was affected by that. So I think that's a fair two for Secularis Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. All right. Well, we have two pictures. All right. We're in a raid on our traditional one. So I will send you that first. You can say things that you want to say about him. Oh, he looks mad, too. Kind of, sort of. Wait till you see the next one. This is just standard guy to me. I'm not getting anything. That is a man. That is an old man with a bunny poof. There's, there, yeah, there's that. He kind of has a, like, a Scottish dog beard. <laughs> yeah, he kind of has that Westy look about him. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's a man. Yeah, so what do you want to give him? Uh, two. You're going to give him a two? Yeah, he doesn't have that really funny tiny face. Yeah, I'm going to give him a one because there's nothing amazing here. And yeah, I don't know. Some of the other popes we've looked at lately have been a lot more exciting. So yeah, this this is a big uh, letdown for everybody tuning in to listen to Facium Sanctus. 
Well, okay, that gives him a 0.75 for score. But is it a letdown? Because here's the next picture for you. (laughs) If you thought he looked mad before. Oh, now he... Oh, wow. He reminds me of a dragon. I see where you're going with this. All right, so... He's still... I don't even know. Okay, he's kind of got like a big dwarfy nose. His beard's gotten a lot longer. It has. A lot straighter. Yep. Very Santa, his beard. Mm Mm-hmm. He looks like somebody tried to touch his book and he's going, no touchy, a la Sixtus. He's real mad about it. Somebody across the room has a copy of the book and he's upset about it because he thought he was special. It's supposed to be mine. (laughs) He did think he was special, but that is definitely not what we have learned today. He is not very special. He looks like he's a Christmas tree. A Christmas tree Santa Claus dragon. Yes. His shirt is green with like little balls on it. Flower balls. And the cape is red, so it's Christmas colors. Yeah. All right. I like the book thing that he thought he was special. Maybe somebody wrote, it's it's like a yearbook and somebody wrote in his yearbook, Nobody will remember you, but they'll remember your brother. Oh no, that's rude too. Say hi to your brother for me. Poor Pius. Tempus Pontificus. So, Telesphorus died between 140 and 142, and we've accepted that to be 140. And we'll split the difference on the death dates and call it 155. So, this gives him a total papacy of 15 years. That's pretty big. Yeah, gives him a score of 3.75, so that's where he's getting a lot of his points. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round! What do you think? Uh, What do I think? Do I think he's... Is this a trick question? Yeah, pretty much. Of course he's a saint. Everyone at this time is a saint. He's a saint! His feast day is July 11th. Kind of, sort of. That's tomorrow. It is! Oh, wow. I didn't even notice. It used to be the feast of his martyrdom, but since we can't verify that at all and it's not mentioned anywhere that he was martyred, martyred, it was reduced from a feast to a simple commemoration in 1955 by Pope Pius XII. Rude! I know, right? The originator of his name. He's gonna, like, mark down, so. You're doing him a disservice. A total disservice. And he is, of course, not the patron saint of anything, unless you want to count the St. Pius I Catholic Church in Hemphill, Texas. That's it. Oh, wow. Okay. So what do you want to make him a patron saint of? The not cool kids. The outcasts? Uh, how can we say that? The patron saint of not being in the spotlight? The wallflowers. Ah, there we go. Wallflowers. He is the patron saint of the wallflowers. Not the 90s band. No. (laughs) Although, they can take him if they want him to. They could. Let's get the word out about Pope Pius. Come on, wallflowers. Accept it now. I think we could go with it. Mm Mm-hmm. So he is now the patron saint of wallflowers. And now that brings us to tabulate up his final score. As if it didn't automatically go on the spreadsheet. Well, there was a couple times where it was not doing it. Not doing the thing. Not doing the math. It did this time. And his final score is 13.5. Well, he's in the double digits, so... 
he's not as low as Sixtus. So that's something. But that does put him in second to last at this point. But there there are people in the teens club. He's not alone in that. There are one, two, three. There's four popes in the teens club. So he's just the lowest of the teens club. So, And this brings us to our final question where we must debate and consider whether or not he has left an impression on us more than anyone else in his story with pizzazz and all of that that it takes to win a papal bull. Well, I think Pope Pius XII said it for us. <laughs> I think he did. I don't think that there's a chance for him. I feel bad because he's totally overshadowed by everybody, but I just can't do it. There's no way I could do it. No. So with that, he goes to purgatory. I don't know if that'd be any different for him. No, it'd probably be just like the rest of his life. Just a bunch of people walking by him, not paying any attention. So that brings us to thank yous. And again, we have thank yous to make. So thank you, Lee, from the Viking Age podcast for recommending our show. That is awesome. He was also on New and Noteworthy lately, so I know he's got a lot of buzz. So putting out the word about us, super cool move. Fun stuff. We also need to thank Chris from Crises on Infinite Earths who's been tweeting about us a lot. He he seems to really enjoy our show, and he gives me a lot of feedback, and he's been super nice about it. So thank you, Chris. I finally found your show on my podcast app, and I'm going to be listening, so that's great. We need to thank Scott and the Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook, which has now, interestingly, become the second largest Facebook group, period, for this subject. It's, like, huge. He's got thousands and thousands of people in there, and there's tons and tons of information in there, so that is a good group. You should check it out. There, There is occasionally Pope stuff, so I always go in and check that out. We're going to thank the American Revolution podcast for shouting out about us. That was awesome, too. Thank you very much. And to the Ghost Hoes, who are our real-life friends. Yeah, they are definitely our real-life friends. Yeah, and they have a podcast about ghosts. Mm-hmm. They drink and they talk about ghosts. So check them out, too. But thank you, Ghost Hose. Yeah, thanks, Ghost Hose. Check out all of the podcasts that we've recommended. And also, of course, thanks, Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. Huge, huge supports all of the time. Totally, totally backing us up. They're the best. They're the ultimate. So definitely check them out, too. So, we are on most major podcatching platforms, and we're also on Spotify, which is crazy. Can't believe that happened. Holy moly. So, you can also get us on Spotify if you want. I don't actually know if people listen to podcasts on Spotify. They will now. <laughs> it seems like everybody I know keeps their podcasts and their music separate, so... Uh. Well, we're just creeping into the market slowly. We want to be everywhere. Pontifex everywhere. And um, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at PontifexPod. I'm doing this with a cold. Um, <laughs> <sighs> let's see. You can email us at PontifexPod at gmail.com. I don't think we have we gotten any emails lately. You haven't told me about any emails for like weeks. We have one guy who emails in after every episode, and it's wonderful. I love it. I love it. You will have to forward me those. Yes, I will. They are fantastic. He's the Latin teacher, and he's wonderful, so he, he sends us emails. Awesome. 
And, uh, yeah, so the other thing we need is for, like, rate and review on stuff. We could use the reviews. I'm doing a real bad job talking about this. If you'd really like to help this podcast grow, the best thing that you can do to help us out is to go to the iTunes store, find Pontifacts, and leave us a five-star review. If you want to write a couple nice words about us, that would be excellent, excellent, excellent. But even if you just click that button, five stars, that makes us more visible. That helps more people find us. And the more people that find us and support the show is going to help us keep it going for longer. We do want to do all the popes. We're going to try and dedicate as much time as we can to this series. So the more support we have in that kind of way, the easier it's going to be to do that. So definitely, definitely get on iTunes. I mean, even if you don't want to give us five stars, leave us some stars. Stars are great. But five is always great. Five stars is the one that's going to help us the most. <laughs> no. Yeah, but we'll, we'll take them all. Even if it's a one star. If you hate us, well, bully for you. And with that, I guess we should say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Oh.